Well, it is Palm Sunday. And I remember when I was a, a small child in an Anglican church, we used to get a little palm cross every Palm Sunday. Back then, I really didn't know what it was meant to symbolise. But uh, I do remember getting the little palm cross and using it as a bookmark uh, for months and months after Palm Sunday. So we're going to focus a little bit on the meaning of Palm Sunday today. And uh, first, the first thing I want to do is to actually take you back to the time that Jesus lived. And uh, that time was a pretty tough time because, as you know, uh, the, the Israelites, they were under the thumb of the Romans. So I want to show you some things here that I just about guarantee you would have never have heard about before. And I'm sorry that the font's a bit small there. We had an internet malfunction this morning. I, I actually got up at about 3am this morning to get this all finished. No internet until about uh, five minutes past seven. So I wasn't real happy about that. And there's no one you can ring up at half past three in the morning to find out what's wrong with your internet. But anyway, um, we're, we're here. We've got everything sorted. But um, listen, living in the Roman Empire was no fun for most of the people who had to actually live there. There were about 70 million people. But of those 70 million, very, very few were very well off. The, the average income was around about $700, that's 700 US dollars, about $700 a year, but it was very, very unequally distributed. Less than 2% of the population were well off. So, you know, we think about the sort of standard of living that we have, less than 2% of the population were able to live at the kind of standard that most of us live at. And really... In the empire, it was only those who were senators, that is, politicians, or in the equestrian order. Uh, they were athletes, elite athletes, civic notables, and some other wealthy people, wealthy mainly through, through trade of one kind or another. So just think about that. Just 2% of the population were well off. Somewhere between 84 and 90% lived at subsistence level, that is... They only had enough to keep themselves alive. They couldn't do anything above if they were lucky or blessed perhaps. A couple of square meals a day and some rudimentary shelter. And if they were Jews, of course, they had to pay the temple tax as well. Somewhere between 10 and 22% were living below the starvation level. So there were, for example, high rates of infant mortality. A lot of people weren't doing very well at all. It was a very, very tough environment in which to live. Not only that, the Romans ruthlessly put down any uprisings. And of course, for some hundreds of years, the zealots among the Jews and some others, they periodically rose up against their Roman overlords and they were ruthlessly dealt with by the Roman army. Those paintings you might have seen of, of this pale-faced, blonde-headed, smooth-skinned Jesus and skinny, yeah, that's right, he was probably quite fat as well, but all of those traditional paintings you've seen 
are absolute misrepresentations. Now, I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong with those. Those, those paintings were um, produced at a particular time in history. But actually, if the picture you have in your mind is of a Jesus like that, nothing could be further from the truth. He was probably quite short because nutrition standards back then were nowhere nearly as good as they are now. He probably had dirty feet because he walked on dusty roads in leather sandals. He probably had leathery skin because he'd been out in the sun so often and it would have been quite dark. And his hair might not have looked as if he'd had the advantage of $100 worth of product every week. His followers, more than likely, were people who had been used to living at very low standards of living. Some of his disciples were doing fairly well. The fishermen, they were business guys. They, as far as we know, they actually owned their boats and to, to own a boat for fishing back in those days was to put you at a pretty substantial level of wealth. So some of his disciples at least were pretty wealthy people. But on the whole, the people who followed him, the people who were the subject of Palm Sunday were very, very poor people. So let me just read the story in Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11. This is the, the version which is most often uh, read in churches, but the same event is recorded in the Gospels of Mark and Luke as well. And uh, the words are almost identical, which is a little bit unusual actually, because the Gospels usually record the same event using slightly different wording, but there's very little difference. So we look at uh, Matthew 21 and we read verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has needed them and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them, uh, presumably on the colt, uh, not both of them at the same time. I, I was just you know, trying to picture Jesus straddling a, a donkey and a colt. And I'm thinking, I don't quite know how that works. So there could be a little bit of an issue with the translation there. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. There are a few points I want to make here, uh, not in any particular order, 
But the first one is, no, Jesus didn't steal a cult. Um, he didn't set up a cult either, but um, that's a, uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> he didn't steal a cult. The person who owned the cult instinctively knew who the Lord was. And that's why the owner released the, the cult. So Jesus didn't steal it. There was no particular magic about it. Jesus was very well known to these people who were following him. And he was called the son of David. There were others who had recognized him as the son of David. And that is, what that means is, they recognized him as the promised Messiah. And that, of course, is what upset the priests in the temple. So he didn't steal the cult. People knew that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the son of David, the son of the one true living God, the Messiah, the one who was sent to save. But there's a great paradox here because Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on the colt on a donkey, which was not the chosen method for people who were going to engage in war. They would normally choose a horse and preferably with a chariot behind the horse. So there's a great paradox here. There's recognition on the one hand that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the Messiah sent by God to save the nation of Israel and all the world. And yet he chooses, he chooses to enter Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion by means of a donkey. What a contrast that was with the zealots, those who wanted to rise up against the Romans and not only the Romans but rise up against the priestly class who were oppressing the people. Remember most people living in Jesus' time were living at or below the subsistence level. So they were hungry, they weren't well clothed and you know it gets pretty cold in Israel at night and if you're not well clothed, if you don't have a nice warm cloak, you're probably going to shiver. Most It was a really tough period. The zealots wanted to be the opposite of who Jesus was. So there is this paradox of a lowly king. And yet the passage in Zechariah that was referred to in the little video actually mentions that he will come as a lowly king. Now what does lowliness actually mean? Well, you might think oh, it means really humble or, or perhaps poor or perhaps pitiful. But no, if you have a look at the original language, you will see that lowliness is actually power under perfect control. You see, Jesus was God, but he chose to live on earth as a human being. He made that choice and he remained, as it were, a man right up to and throughout his crucifixion experience. But you see, he had the power. Remember when Peter cut off the ear of the Roman soldier? Actually, he was a um, temple soldier, I think. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, don't you know I could have called legions of angels 
So if Jesus had actually wanted to, of course, he could have overthrown the Roman overlords. He could have done that easily simply by calling in legions of angels. And he could have said, go get them. And they would have gone got them. And he would have replaced that particular earthly kingdom with another. So lowliness is power under perfect control. Jesus came to bring about a revolution of our heart, not a revolution in the political system. I think it's very significant that the word Hosanna literally means save now. And although by the time that Jesus rode this donkey into Jerusalem, the word Hosanna was actually a term of adoration, it was originally a cry for help. And I actually wonder, you know, how many people in the crowd that day were actually using the word Hosanna in its original sense. Hungry, tired, oppressed, poor people without much hope. Save us now. Save us now, O King. Save us now. And Jesus continues to ride into Jerusalem. He's recognized as the son of David, the Messiah promised by God. There's such a commotion that people in the city of Jerusalem are asking, who is this man? The Bible records that all the city was moved and that word moved, the verb, actually is a word which is used in connection with earthquakes. So imagine the commotion that was going on in Jerusalem. We don't know how big the crowd was, but there must have been thousands in that crowd who, who laid their clothes on the road, who cut at least branches from the trees. Presumably they were palm trees which grow in that area. They, they covered the road as an acknowledgement of the kingliness of Jesus. There's a lot of noise. There are people thronging everywhere. And in the city they ask, who is it? Who is this man? And the response, of course, is he's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. That's quite interesting because I would have thought they might have referred to him as the king, the king, the Messiah, who's come to respond to our cries of Hosanna. I think it's really interesting as we reflect during this coming week, we're at Palm Sunday now, we're heading towards Good Friday and then Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. I thought it might be useful for us to go through a whole series of emotions and thoughts that people might have had who were in the crowd that day. In their hearts, he goes from king to criminal in just a week. He's riding into Jerusalem. They see him as the son of David, the one who has come to save them from oppression. They adore this one this one who teaches more wisely 
than any other. This one who they came to call Rabbi because of the wisdom that he had. They adore him. They love this man. He's their hero because in their hearts they believe that he was the one whom God sent to save them. But then, Jesus does some things that are pretty strange. Their expectations are raised. You know, the, as I said in the, vid in the video, didn't it, that the, the palm branches were a symbol of, of victory. So people were expecting that there was going to be an imminent victory, an imminent overthrow of the oppressors. But instead, what does he do? He goes into Jerusalem, and, and I'm fairly certain that this was sequential. You've got to be a bit careful reading the Bible because just as you go from one paragraph to another doesn't necessarily mean that it's sequential in time. But I'm pretty certain that in this case, he goes into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and that's where he turns over the tables of all the people who were trading there. Among other things, they, they were keeping the Gentiles out because as I understand it, all of that trading was happening on the level that the Gentiles were allowed to sort of go into the temple. So that was actually keeping people away from developing a relationship with God. So he cleanses the temple. That's probably okay because as he does that, he says, you know, my house or my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. It wasn't meant to be a house of oppression. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all of the nations. But then there's a very strange thing happens. We stay in Matthew 21, but we move to verses 23 to 26. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. Which of you will tell me? I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they, that is the priests and the elders, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, can you imagine the people are now disappointed? Because here Jesus had the opportunity to say to the leaders of the temple, my authority comes from God because I am his son. I am the son of David promised as the Messiah. He had the opportunity to do that. Those people who were shouting, Hosanna, save us now, wanted him to put his authority on the line and tell the priestly order 
that he was the son of God, he was the Messiah, he had come to establish the new kingdom. But he didn't do that. So all of these people who were expecting him to do something radical are now disappointed. And it's very interesting, you know, that in the 1970s and 1980s, a a particular approach to theology developed. It's called liberation authority. It was pretty big in Latin America. It actually was developed originally in Europe. Uh, Bonhoeffer actually was one of those who uh, was uh, one of the early uh, writers. Some of you would have heard of Dietrich uh, Bonhoeffer, famous priest in uh, in Germany, who was actually uh, executed because he became involved in a plot to kill Hitler. But um, this this thinking became quite uh, significant in Latin America by the 1980s and 1990s. It's called liberation theology, uh, associated mainly with the Catholic Church because that area of the world is Catholic. And, you know, the liberation theologists were just like so many people in that crowd. They reckoned Jesus' purpose was to literally overthrow the earthly political regimes. And they've developed a whole theology which justifies overthrowing uh, the political class, uh, killing them, in fact. Now, I understand that because people who were living in Latin America were living in a system that was oppressing them. There weren't many rich landowners there. And the landowners were actually exploiting the people who didn't own land, the people who worked on the land. I I studied this when I was a student in, in university. I fully understand how liberation theology developed because people down through the ages have wanted Jesus to be a different kind of king. They've wanted him to be the kind of king who overthrows earthly kingdoms. But his whole message was, I'm setting up a totally different kingdom. It's a kingdom that requires revolution of the heart. But the people didn't understand that, so they were disappointed. You know, and after after he was arrested... How many people deserted him? The whole lot. You know, his disciples even. We're talking about the 12 here. You know, Peter's the most famous, of course, because he denied Christ three times. But all of his disciples deserted him. He was left alone. They never understood. And even today, Thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people don't understand the message that Jesus brought. Revolution of the heart, a kingdom in heaven, ultimately a kingdom that will rule on the earth, but not until his second coming. So he's deserted and the next time the crowds are shouting, they're shouting Barabbas or Barabbas. Remember, there was a tradition that at the Passover, the, the Romans would release a prisoner uh, to the Jews and they could have released either Jesus or Barabbas. So this crowd that just a week previously had been yelling out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, is now yelling out, Barabbas, Barabbas. How could this man who was exalted one day is condemned by some of the same people who had exalted him just a week before. And of course, we know where the story goes. 
it goes to his crucifixion. What an amazing story it is. Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate this triumphant journey of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He cleanses that temple. But on his next encounter with the priests in the temple, he chooses not to prove that he is who he said he was and whom others said he was. That leads to the disappointment of people because their expectations are not met and they turn against him. And as we know, he ends up being crucified. But we have the wonderful privilege today of knowing the truth. We know because we have the word of God written down for us. We know the nature of the kingdom. You know, remember Jesus once said to the crowd, the kingdom of God is among you. It's here right now. The kingdom of God is here right now because by the Holy Spirit, Christ is alive in us. Each of us who has been born again has actually experienced a revolution of the heart and we've turned our back on the things of the world and we have embraced the things of the kingdom. Love God, love your neighbour as you love yourself and so on. We come from a world which sometimes oppresses us, which doesn't always treat us well. But we have within us the kingdom of God. And we know that he is coming to reign eternally. And there will be a day, there will be a day when all earthly kingdoms are replaced by the one kingdom, the kingdom of God. And right now, we can work with God as his kingdom is established on earth. You know, we live in an imperfect world. But as we are transformed ourselves, we have the opportunity to transform that part of the world in which we live and act. Within our families, within our workplace, within our social settings. We have all of those areas where we have influence. And as people observe our lives, what they see in our lives adoration and expectation or will they see in our lives disappointment and desertion praise God when people observe us in our family situation in our work situation in our social situation they will see people who adore the Lord Jesus Christ and who fully expect that every promise that he made is a promise that he will keep let's not be christians who appear to be disappointed christians who have in fact deserted our lord jesus christ and let's hold to the hope of glory that he promises
to us. And hope, of course, is the theme that will uh, draw us together next Sunday as we celebrate the risen Lord. And it is through the risen Lord, of course, that we have 